welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I call this uh, forever, forever His because that's exactly what eternal security means uh, and should mean to us. And um, it is a problem, uh, not just in places like Eastern Europe, but really everywhere we go, we run into this issue of pushback on eternal security with the common objections that we always hear. You're just teaching a license to sin. I was once preaching in uh, Romania, going through the book of Romans, and uh, it was, it was uh, uh, 400 people packed into this church. And going through Romans, and I, I was cruising along fine until I got to chapter 8 and taught eternal security. And then the, the elders actually stood up and started rebuking me through the translator. I'm glad I didn't know what they were saying. <laughs> but they were angry. That, that immoral doctrine from the West, they called it. And they were angry. And it was just finally made it through that. It was about a 10 minute thing going on there. And I don't know all that was said, thankfully. But that's the kind of pushback you get in a lot of these places over this doctrine of eternal security. Sometimes it's called once saved, always saved. And that's exactly what it means. But that term is used derogatorily about those who hold to the issue of eternal security as if I don't care if they say that myself, but they use it as a derogatory term. But the eternal security is really foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus promised us. He promises everlasting life. And if everlasting life doesn't mean everlasting, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, it ought to be called something else. So we want to talk about this, and we see the problems that it causes in churches when people who come to believe in Jesus Christ begin to question or not be educated about the security of that salvation. And they can live in fear and doubt. I never forget the conversation uh, that we had with a friend who was telling us how joyful she was when she came to know Christ as Savior. And for about nine months, she was just rejoicing and uh, like floating on air, she described it. And then she went to church one day, and uh, uh, she was telling another woman in the church this testimony. And the woman said to her, well, you better be careful or you can lose it. And she said she just went from here all the way down to here. And unfortunately, still lives with those doubts when we knew her. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Chinese people do crazy things. I think this is from China. They built this bridge out of glass, okay? Um, I'm gonna do this, get some sound on this. <laughs> well, what would you do? <laughs> Here's this man confidently walking across. He thinks he's brave. He's walking through across this bridge and all of a sudden starts to crack by computer 
you know, magic under his feet, and he says, this guy is genuinely terrified. <laughs> we have so many Christians who start off the Christian life rejoicing in the Lord until they get into this wrong church, wrong doctrine, wrong friend, friend's influence that suddenly starts to question that salvation. Well, are you doing enough? Are you really saved? Did you really believe? Did you believe enough? Did you say the right prayer? I mean, and so on and so forth. And, you know, you can lose that salvation if you're not careful. They never seem to quite have the definitive list of what it takes to lose that salvation, which is a very frustrating thing. But it's a problem, it seems, everywhere we go and everyone we run into, especially when we leave the shores of the United States of America, but boy, here too. But we have the God's promise about that uh, in John 5, 24. He says, most assuredly I say to you, Jesus said, who, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, let me ask you a question. If I just read this part, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears me, my word and believes in me has everlasting life. Can somebody get saved with that message? Yeah, absolutely right. That's John 3.16, basically. So why does Jesus say shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life? He wants to get them on that road to security, understanding what everlasting life means. I'm convinced that not everybody who believes in Jesus Christ for everlasting life understands the full implications of what that means. And so they become victims to unsound teaching. So Jesus didn't need to say that for someone to be saved, but he wants to confirm what he is saying and meaning by the word everlasting life. And then we have this wonderful promise in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me, uh, will, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. By no means cast out. God, Jesus, will not kick them out of the family. And you're very familiar with a foundational passage for the doctrine of eternal security, John 10, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Not just a great statement of deity, but a great statement of security because we're held in that double grip of grace. You cannot, no one, not that includes you, cannot be snatched from his hand. You can't snatch yourself from his hand. And he is held firmly also in the Father's hand. The doctrine of eternal security then is uh, those who have obtained eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ cannot forfeit that life because of what they do or do not do. That's it stated simply. And the reason they can't forfeit it, it because of what they do or do not do is because they weren't saved by anything they did and, and because of what they did not do. So it is very foundational to the gospel of grace. Well, some people don't believe that promise. They're skeptical about it. And uh, usually what we hear is the 
objection. Well, that encourages sin. It gives people a license to sin. You're telling people they can do whatever they want to do. Uh, but our briefly, our answer to that would be what grace teaches us not to sin. You know what Romans 6 says, and it motivates us to live for God. Uh, in fact, Titus uh, 2, 11 through 14 says that grace trains us. Look what it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The grace of God has appeared, and then it teaches us. The word comes from the word we get pedagogy. Pedagogy means to train up. It's more than just teaching. It's training up and instructing uh, in a disciplined way. It trains us to live a godly life. We don't live a godly life and then the grace of God appears, right? Now, you know I like to fish. I've not yet caught a fish that has been cleaned and filleted. They come, they come out slimy and smelly, and I got to clean them up after I catch them. God cleans up his fish after he catches them, and that's what we expect. Because when they understand the grace of God, they begin to learn the implication of that grace and how to live a godly life and to deny an ungodly life. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, I always like to point out that Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. Uh, one of my most astute observations I've ever made. Now, seriously, because chapters 1 through 11 is nothing about what you have to do. It's all about what you are in Christ and what God has done for us. And then he says, now offer your bodies a living sacrifice. That's the reasonable thing to do. And so the reasonable thing to do after we understand God's grace is not to sin. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, should you go on sinning? No way, with an emphasis on the negative. And there's reasons for that. Uh, because we have a new master, Romans 6 tells us. We have a new position in the family of God. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus. We have a new power, Romans 6 and, through, uh, and chapter 8 especially emphasizes the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to sin, and we shouldn't sin, and there are consequences to sin. Some people say, well, to, if, if eternal security is true, then it's just not fair. Because a person can live like, can believe in Jesus Christ, you're telling me, live like hell and yet go to heaven. And I am a disciplined disciple trying to live a godly life and I too go to heaven. That's not fair for him to go to heaven also. My answer to that is, when is grace ever fair? <laughs> Grace, by its very definition, is not fair. It's an undeserved, free gift of God. Grace is never fair. If grace is fair, uh, if grace was uh, fair, or if God was fair, we'd all be in hell, paying for our own sins. But because grace is not fair, he sent one to die in our place. It wasn't fair that Jesus died in our place but we get the benefit of his death. And that's what Romans 5.19 is reminding us. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. 
It wasn't fair. Some people like to say, well, it's not fair to blame me for Adam's sin and, that, and to call me a sinner because of what Adam did. But wait a minute, the Bible says we were in Adam. And actually, we were physically, our DNA was in Adam. That's where it came from. We were there. So we inherited his sin as much as we inherited his DNA. We inherited his sin nature. But even if it's not fair that we got his sin, it's not fair that Jesus would take it away. The one who lived a perfect life died for those who lived sinfully. Think of the thief on the cross. At the last, minute, last minutes of his life, he professes faith in who Jesus is, and Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. That's not fair, is it? The guy didn't even get baptized. He didn't have time to do anything good. Well, grace is never fair. Well, some people say, you know, there are verses in the Bible that say you can lose your salvation. Now, let's admit that there are verses in the Bible that you read when you were a new Christian that said it, look, it looks like it says you can lose your salvation. He tells the Galatians, for example, you've fallen from grace. The Hebrews, the warnings in Hebrews can be very confusing to people. The uh, conditions in 1 John, those who don't love their brother are not from God. So there's a lot of passages we admit that are like that. Well, we can go, uh, you know, some, we can counterpunch. Somebody says, well, what about this verse? We say, well, what about this verse? We go back and forth. What I've learned the best thing to do is to try to show people that the verses that we're talking about that are problem passages can fall into certain categories. And if we understand those categories, we can understand the context and where that verse is coming from. For example, the warnings in the, or talking about divine chastening. Um, as an example, as one example, Hebrews chapter 12. It's not, the rush to judgment is that it's talking about hell. God disciplines or chastens his children. Uh, would be talking about hell, that he maybe takes salvation from them. Uh, but the context there is divine chastening of his children in the book of Hebrews. And we have divine discipline all through the scriptures. Um, in different forms. That's just one verse. But how about a verse like 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15, where fire burns up the works that are unworthy. And, and so our knee-jerk reaction to whenever we read fire, or when others read the word fire, is to think of hell. Is he talking about hell there? Well, no, because he says the works are burned up, yet he will be saved, yet so as through fire. So he would be saved. He's just going to come out on the other end with, with singed eyebrows. There's a lot of Christians in heaven that are going to smell like secondary smoke. Uh, they made it, but so as through fire. They lost their rewards. They were burned up. It's not talking about a rush to judgment is that they lost their salvation. But that category is a loss of rewards. Or how about Psalm 51 where David is confessing his sin and he and he talks about, uh, 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 restore to me the joy of my salvation. And some people say, see, J uh, David lost his salvation. He doesn't say that, though. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He knew that his fellowship with God had dried up. Read Psalm 32. He talks about being all dried up spiritually, like his, his bo whole body is groaning, his bones are aching, his life has been sucked out of him. He he's, feels like he's separated from God. Yeah, he might even feel like an unsaved person. 
But that's a loss of relationship, a uh, loss of fellowship, not a loss of relationship. The rush to judgment is that he's lost his relationship to God, his position in the family. But the category is a loss of fellowship. And there are many, many passages, especially in the New Testament, that talk about that loss of fellowship with God. And I think that's how we understand 1 John the best way. Um, sometimes, you know, the Bible talks about physical death, uses the word death, and we rush to judgment and say, well, that's hell. There is a sin unto death. James 5, 1 John 5, there is a sin unto death. But I think those passages are probably talking about physical death as 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 30. The, the Christians who abuse the Lord's Supper, it says, some of you have fallen asleep or died. Does that mean they went to hell? Does that mean Ananias and Sapphira went to hell? If you read my book, the black and white book, I call it, Grace, Salvation, Discipleship, I think I give seven different ways death is used in the Bible. It's never, it never means cessation. It always means separation of some kind. So we have to ask what kind of separation in the context. Well, physical death is separation from, we could say, maybe our body from our soul. Um, our rush to judgment sometimes, though, when we read that word death, many will say, well, that's eternal death, going to hell. But it could be talking about God's discipline, a physical death. And then how about a, a passage like the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, where it talks about a fiery discipline. The rush to judgment in the book of Hebrews is very quick to go to hell in the, in the warning passages. And yet, the word the word fire is only used once or twice, and the word fiery or zealous is used once as here in chapter 10. And even in the warning passages, they are addressed as Christians, so we know it can't be threatening them with hell. It's a discipline that is a very zealous or a fiery discipline. He says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God, but at least you fall into his hands, not out of his hands. God has the same fiery anger towards sin in a believer as he does towards an unbeliever. That's what, that's what chapter 10 is saying. He gets angry at sin, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. It just, it's just results in different things. For an unbeliever, it results in hell because they've never believed. His wrath results in hell. For a believer, his anger towards us results in some kind of very severe discipline, which Hebrews never really explains exactly what that is. Anyway, what I'm saying is that there's a lot of passages that those who oppose eternal security will throw at us, and rather than just go counterverse and counterpunch, I think it's helpful to help them see these different categories and which passage are they saying and what category does that belong to. And then we can help them see other passages and a pattern in the scripture that teach some of these things like divine discipline, loss of rewards, or loss of fellowship, or physical death, and things like that. Now, why do people believe in eternal security? Because the Bible teaches that grace covers all our sin. If grace covers all our sin, there's no sin that will cause me to lose my salvation. Romans 5.20 says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In other words, grace is always one step ahead of our sin. We can't outrun it. We can't outdistance it. We can't outsin God's grace. 
And that would cause immediately somebody who reads this passage to say, oh, then I can sin. And that's what they say in chapter 6, the next verse. Twice the objection is raised, oh, I can sin. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. You've died to sin. You have a new master. You're not under the law. You're under grace. And he makes the argument in Romans chapter 6 to the objection that comes to this teaching that grace abounds greater than all our sin. Or Colossians 2, 13 through 14, and you being dead in your trespasses, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And I take the word all there to mean past, present, and future. Because how many of my sins were future to Jesus Christ when he died on the cross? All of them, right? So am I going to do anything tomorrow that's going to surprise God? Am I going to do anything tomorrow to say, oh boy, I didn't know Charlie was going to do that one. I, I wouldn't have saved him. Or I ought to take that back. By the grace of God, I won't do anything that, that bad, but I know I'll mess up, and so will you. And yet God will never regret saving you. God knew from all eternity that you would do what you're going to do because God lives outside of eternity. He knows your life from beginning to end. He is the beginning and the end. There's nothing that you're going to do that's going to surprise him and make him sorry for saving you. There's no sin that he did not cover on the cross. The worst thing you've done or the worst thing you're yet to do. Now, that's not an invitation to sin. That's an invitation to worship. Right? You see, that's the problem with the people who say, you're giving people a license to sin. My counter to them is, "Can can you name somebody that's actually said that? Because I've never met anybody personally that has said, hey, the grace of God, I'm going to go and do whatever I want to do. I hear people use that objection. I've never met anybody say that. But I have met thousands and thousands and thousands of people who said, I understand the grace of God. I am secure forever. I'm going to serve God the rest of my life. You see, so it's really a canard, a red herring. uh, uh, It's a false argument. Ask them for an example of somebody who says that. Now, there are people who do say that. And uh, Paul talks about them in Jude, those who uh, abuse the grace of God with licentiousness. But I think he's actually talking about unbelievers there. But we know from the scripture that believers can abuse the grace of God also. I just haven't met them. Anybody who's just blatantly said, I, I can do whatever I want to, I'm saved. Well, another reason that people believe in the eternal security is because grace is God's consistent attitude towards all mankind. It always has been. He is called the God of all grace in 1 Peter. He is called the God of all grace. He's always looked at mankind with the attitude of grace from the very beginning of creation. Creation itself is an act of grace. The the clothing of Adam and Eve in the garden is an act of grace. The promise in Genesis 3.15 of a coming seed and deliverer is an act of grace and, and the fulfillment of that promise through history. But if you want the greatest example of his attitude of grace towards mankind, look at the Jewish nation. Did he choose the Jewish nation because they were good? No, he chose the Jewish nation because he chose the Jewish nation. God chose the Jews because he chose the Jews, period. Not because they deserve it, nor did they ever prove that they would deserve it. 
They were disobedient constantly, as Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, stiff-necked, disobedient people. That's their history. And yet God never gave up on them or turned his back on them and promises them a future for all Israel will be saved, 11 and 26. And 11, uh, Romans eleven twenty nine, and the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's an assurance to Israel that God has them secure in his future plans. God's attitude towards mankind has always been an attitude of grace and forgiveness and restoration. If we take one step towards God, he'll take two steps towards us. Well, some people say, uh, believe in eternal security because they understand that difficult Bible passages can be explained in the context and in light of the clearer Bible passages. So, of course, there are difficult passages. We look at them and, and we see how people can arrive at the conclusion they could lose their salvation. But there are so many clear passages. Too many to even begin to mention. I mentioned a few at the beginning of my talk. But you know that there's so many clear passages that talk about uh, our eternal security, our eternal life. We're sealed by the Spirit of God. Uh, our, our, we have an anchor in the most holy place in heaven. I love that that picture in the Hebrews, uh, a, a sure home. Hebrews is one assurance after another, and yet the book is so distorted to be used in other ways. But I think really the argument for eternal security comes to a climax in Romans chapter 8. That's probably the strongest passage. So I want to take some time to go through that with you. And I want to start in verse 28, which is very familiar to us, and we use it quite often. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we often use this. Somebody gets in a bad accident, a car accident, and there's a tragedy, and we, they lose their job, and we say, well, all things work together for good. And that's okay to use it that way. That's a, theologically, that's true. But in the context of which Paul is using that, he's talking about every, there's nothing that's going to happen to you that's going to thwart God's purpose of what he wants to do with you. And what does he want to do with you? That's in the next verse, okay? So in the context, I think this is what he's talking about. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, firstborn of the most prominent among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and these, those whom he called these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you look at the end of his chain there, the last goal, purpose for us as believers is to be glorified. And there's nothing that can happen to us to keep us from being glorified. If we have been justified, we will be glorified. And that's why he says, all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose, the purpose of glorifying us and making us like Jesus Christ. So in the context, that's how I understand verse 28. There's nothing that's going to stop God from bringing us to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Some people call this the golden chain. And uh, talking about how God has foreknown us from eternity past and uh, predestined us to be like Jesus Christ. He calls us with an invitation to salvation, and then justifies and then glorifies us. Now, that's how it is laid out in time. But remember, God is outside of time. And so God sees the beginning from the end. 
What God purposes in his mind is the reality. I can't really ex understand or explain that perfectly because I don't have the, the, the perfect mind of what it means to be outside of time. But God is, and, he, and as long as he understands it, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, right? I don't need to understand it. <laughs> and then he goes on to ask a series of questions, or rhetorical questions, you'll see. Um, he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, boy, you know, if, if God has guaranteed our glorification, how do I respond? What can I say about that? It's like he's speechless, so he asks that rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? We got God for us. Tampa, Tampa Bay couldn't even beat him. Heard about that game. I can't say I'm not a Cowboys fan because it's being recorded. <laughs> Who can stand against you and God together? Obviously, the answer is nobody can do that. And then he asks another rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, here's the reasoning behind this. If God didn't spare the most precious thing ever that he knew, his son, won't he give us the smaller things that we need to get us where we're going? <laughs> it doesn't make sense if he gives us his son that he'd let us lose that because of something trivial that we do or some other sin that we do because his son was given as a price to pay for any sin. He's going to get us to where we're going because he has paid the price and he didn't spare the greatest thing. Now, if I invited you to visit me in my home in Texas and I said, you said, well, I don't, I don't have the money. I said, okay, I'll give you the money for airfare. Come visit me. Do you think I'm going to leave you at the airport? I'd probably arrange for you to get a, to, to ride. I'd probably meet you there myself and, and take you. I wouldn't let you stranded at the airport. Do you think I'd feed you at my house? Do you think I'd give you one of our guest rooms? I got two, by the way, if you want to come visit us. I'll even pay your airfare if you can't afford it. But my point is, if I'm going to do the greater thing of having you come visit me by paying your airfare, am I not going to do the, the lesser things? to make sure you get all the way there? Of course I am. Maybe that's an absurd illustration of compared to what God has done in giving us his son. If he gave us his son and then we could spoil it by something that we do, then he wasted the most precious thing ever. Of course he's going to give us freely, by grace, all things that we need. God's justification of us cannot be reversed, is what he's saying in Romans 8.33, when he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We know that justification is a legal term, that God has pronounced us, that legally we are 
righteous in the eyes of the law, the divine justice. We're righteous before God, declared righteous before God by the divine decree through faith in Jesus Christ. So who can bring a charge to, against us that's going to reverse that verdict? In America, we have a law called uh, there's no double jeopardy. If you're found innocent of a crime, you cannot be charged again with the same crime. And so someone like O.J. Simpson, who uh, you might have your opinion about his guilt or innocence, but he writes a book that says, and this is, you've heard of this, if I did it, and he tells exactly probably how he did it. <laughs> Just my opinion. I'm not a judge. But he can't be tried for that court even if he were to confess it today. He can't be tried in a legal court of law because there's no double jeopardy. Who can bring a charge against those that God says, innocent? In, the, in my eyes, in the sight of my bar of justice, you are as innocent as my son, Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness. And then he asks another question in verse 34 about Christ's intercession, which cannot be ineffective. He says, who is he who condemns? Who can finally condemn us? Is there anything that we do or can be charged with that would cause us to lose the grace of salvation that he has given to us? And he explains, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen to show that his death was accepted by God as a payment for our sins and to prove that he was God, who is even at the right hand of God, the position of power and influence, who also makes intercession for us. The word intercession is from the courtroom also. It, kind of, it has the idea of a defense advocate, a defense attorney, we might call it. Jesus is our defense attorney standing at God's right hand. He's seated at God's right hand, actually. He's seated at God's right hand, and when Satan accuses us, he says, did you see what Charlie did yesterday? <laughs> You're going to let him into heaven? And, and Jesus says, you know what? I paid for that. I knew he was going to do that, and I paid for that sin anyway. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. You think Jesus has ever lost a case? He might have been tempted in some of your cases, but he's never lost a case. He's never lost a case. He makes intercession for us right now, right there in the presence of the Father. That's a secure thought of ever. He ends chapter 8 with these lofty thoughts about God's love, Christ's love for us that we can never be separated from. And he starts out by this, with this, again, rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's interesting to me that he says who instead of what, because we concentrate on sins. But what is behind sin? Well, I'm behind sin. Satan's behind sin. So it's not the action, but the actor. What actor is there that can separate us from the love of Christ? And his conclusion goes on and on and on. He looks at circumstances. Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Now think of this. Somebody that's going through a difficult time, uh, really stressed out, feels abandoned. Friends have, have, uh, are persecuting him, lying about him, slandering him. Christians. Yeah, Christians. Or they don't even have food to eat. They don't even have clothes to wear. Do you think they might be tempted to say, I guess I'm not God's child after all? 
I could see myself being destitute and wondering if God really loves me. But what Paul is saying is even in those circumstances, there's a God that loves you. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Today we have more people being martyred for Jesus Christ than ever before in history. From what I hear. If you just profess faith in Christ in North Korea, I read the other day, you're, you're executed. Or put in a labor camp, which is pretty much, pretty much a death sentence. The poor Christians in Afghanistan probably, as we stand here and talk, are probably being killed right now for Christ. You think they might be tempted to think, maybe I wasn't, maybe God isn't really faithful after all? They could be. Maybe they need to hear words like this. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're not defeated because of these distressful circumstances, because of persecution, or even because of martyrdom. That, that doesn't mean we're defeated. It means we're still more than conquerors because we're in Him who loved us. And when God loves us and that love can't be taken from us, we're always victors. And Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, no matter, no matter whether we die or matter we keep living in sin and even, nor angels, nor principalities, all the powers, the spiritual powers. Not powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Things to come, things in the future, something that you might do, something that might happen to you. Nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul is looking out through the universe, and he's basically what he's saying is there's nothing nowhere, anywhere, nothing, no one that can take away the love of God from you. It's got a firm grip on you, and he will never let go. And Paul does it. It looks like he's searching for words to describe that kind of tenacious love, doesn't it? And he's searching the universe, and he just can't find anything or anyone, anywhere, that can separate us from the love of God. What a wonderful thought that is. This picture was taken a few years ago. This is my total family. I think we've added one since then. <laughs> but this is actually taken, this is a picture taken kind of uh, uh, serendipitously at the, at the courthouse when one of my children adopted one of these little children here. And so we all met at the courthouse. And... Uh, and we were all together, so I said, hey, let's take a photo. So we did. The judge did something very interesting that day. Uh, very, very, very nice guy. You know, it just wasn't a legal proceeding to him. He call, called the parents up with uh, the child and, and said, uh, now, do you promise to take this child as, as, and treat her like your own and, and give her all the privileges you do your other children and love her forever and forever be a part of your family? And they said, yes, we do. And then he said, where are the, where are the grandparents? So, Come on up here. So us grandparents came up there. Do you promise to spoil this child <laughs> <laughs> at, at Christmas and birthdays? <laughs> yes, we do. Where are the aunts and uncles? Come, all the aunts and uncles came up. Do you promise to babysit when they parents get tired and they want to go out? Yes, we do. Well, who are all these other people? Well, mostly church friends. Well, you all come up too. Fifty people standing right here. Do you promise to bring this child up? <clears throat> and the, 
in the spiritual nurture and care of the Lord. Yes, we do. That child is secure in love, and nothing is going to separate that child from our love. That's called the doctrine of adoption, which God also says he has adopted us into his family. And if he's done that, uh, is he ever going to kick us out of his family? If a human is has to be faithful to those that they adopt, how much more so God to those he adopts and to his family. You know, there's a lot of, not a lot of other arguments that uh, uh, assure us of our eternal security, and uh, we could go into each one of these, but the meaning of eternal life itself, of course, uh, everlasting life, that's what it means. It means it, it's not an interrupted life, it just goes on forever. Uh, God cannot lie, Titus 1-2 says, and I have to remind people of that sometimes. They call, I get, used to get phone calls, especially as a pastor, I get emails now, and they say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm not sure I, if I've committed the unpardonable sin or if I've done this, and I'm not sure of my salvation. I have to tell them, look, you either believe God or not. He's a liar or he's not. Do you believe him? I try to say it compassionately, but that's basically the issue. Is God telling a lie when he says you believe in him, you have eternal life? It really just boils down to that. The whole idea of the new birth, John 3, 3, where he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Can a person be unborn? I mean, physically, that's impossible. Spiritually, is it possible to be unborn? And if I could lose my salvation, do I have to be born again again? And how many times can I be born again again? Again and again. So it gets, gets to be absurd. And then this whole idea of adoption as sons as, that we just talked about, no longer are we treated as slaves, but as sons. Sons have special privileges in an eternal relationship. And then there's the sealing of the Spirit. The sealing, of course, is a guarantee. He puts a down payment or a security deposit, a guarantee that uh, we are his forever. That's what a seal was. It was not to be opened until it reached its destination. And um, we are sealed with the Spirit of God, and we will remain sealed in him until he, we reach his final destination. But what do we conclude? The promise of a secure future or eternal life is central to the gospel of God's grace. When we preach the gospel and tell people that they can have everlasting life, it doesn't hurt at all to explain the implications of what that means in case they don't understand what that means. I asked one man in India, I said, uh, I said, do you believe in Jesus uh, for eternal life? He's a Hindu. And he said, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Uh, we, I believe in many gods. They believe in like six million gods. But he's another one. And, I said, and, I, and he said, uh, I said, well, do you believe in Jesus for eternal life? I was just testing him, really. Uh, I wasn't really going into explaining things at this point. He said, oh yeah, eternal life. Yeah, this, you know, there's a man in Mumbai and he's dead, but his fingernails keep growing. That was his idea of eternal life. But to a Hindu, eternal life means that you're going to be reincarnated again and again and again and again. So if you're witnessing to a Hindu, you might want to explain what that means. You see, we're in a Western context. We take it for granted. People understand what that means, but we need more and more to explain these kind of things to people. It's central to the gospel of grace. Be sure to explain to people what it means. The promise of secure future is a major motivation to godly living. When we know that we're securely held by the love and the grace of God, we have a foundation for growth and we can begin to experience growth because we 
as I say, you can't grow forward if you're always looking backwards, if you're always wondering if you're saved. Just like a child who doubts whether his parents love him and are going to keep him, could not grow in a healthy environment, that child is going to have problems. But if they know their parents are never going to give up on them and love them forever, that child grows up in a healthy environment. You've got to start out with a secure future to have a motivation to live by grace and to serve by grace. The promise of a secure future is the basis for assurance of salvation. Now, technically, there's a difference between eternal security, the doctrine of eternal security, and the more subjective assurance of salvation. Assurance is, um, I don't have the definition here, but assurance is the realization that I am eternally secure. Okay? The reality, the objective truth is I am eternally secure. Assurance is the realization of that personally. Okay? So... People lose their assurance of salvation because of many things, false teaching, introspective personality, they can't deal with a sin, they can't break a bad habit. Many reasons people lose assurance, but they never lose their security. But assurance is another message for another time. Close with a little illustration. In 1937, it was a marvel that the Golden Gate Bridge was built across the San Francisco Bay. It was the largest, or first, really large um, suspension bridge built at the cost of $77 million, quite a big sum back then. The problem was that the high winds over the San Francisco Bay would blow workers off and they were dying. 23 people died. And then they got an idea, a safety net. For $20,000, they built a safety net under the bridge. And guess what? It saved 10 lives. But something else happened that they didn't expect. The work proceeded 25% faster. Why? Because they were secure. There was a safety net. My friends, you cannot grow and be all that you're meant to be and serve God with freedom and joy and not care about be overly fearful of COVID or traveling to the other side of the world unless you know that your salvation is secure and God's got your back no matter what people do to you or no matter what you do isn't that a wonderful doctrine of grace Yes, yes we do thank you Lord for the security that comes through knowing Jesus Christ and him loving us and knowing us and if there's anyone who's listening who has still has fear or doubt about their eternal future we see that the promise of eternal life that cannot be lost is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That eternal life means that it goes on forever. And we, and because you died for our sins and paid for it, there's nothing we can do to lose that gift that you've already paid for. You rose from the dead. You've made us a promise. And now, Lord, if there's anyone who has doubts about their salvation... In all of eternity, I pray that they'd place their faith in what Jesus has done. Stop looking at their works. Stop looking at their troubles, distresses, and their circumstances. And just know that you, you have promised them eternal life. And may they receive that as a gift right now. And we rejoice with you over everyone who does. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, 
or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.